welcome to sort of the story. I'm Janie. And I'm Matt. And this is the Very Normal Podcast where we tell each other fairy tales and folk tales and mythology. And neither of us ever makes a really weird sound right before we start recording. We would never. (laughs) You have to stop. It's so weird. Uh, Welcome to the podcast, guys. (laughs) Also, you are here. There we go. And it's not for kids. And there we go. And yeah, and that's all. <laughs> it's the eye contact. The eye contact is the worst part. Sometimes some people say it's the best part. No, <laughs> they say that in different circumstances than these. <laughs> well, um, welcome to the podcast, guys. How you doing? We're hoping you're having a really good week. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, Max, what's up? Mm, nothing. What's up with you? I got a new car. I know. Oh my god, I got a new car. <laughs> it's so blue. Okay, here's what they did at the dealership. First of all, everybody should bring a Max to the dealership because <laughs> I showed up to to the to get a car dressed like an elementary school art teacher. I was wearing a light pink skirt and I was covered in glitter and I just I looked like I was wearing a sign that said, hello, take advantage of me, please. (laughs) I'm just a little forest baby. I don't know nothing. I don't know nothing. What's this green stuff in my pocket? (laughs) Anyway, so that's what I showed up like. And I got into Max's car. She picked me up and I was like, oh, man, I meant to dress different. (laughs) Meanwhile, Max showed up dressed like, I don't know, my dad, (laughs) like ready to fucking fist fight people. Yeah, I think it was, like, high-waisted jeans. High-waisted jeans. And, like, a bomber jacket. Yeah. Oh, you looked great. White polo. Yeah. Yeah. With your hair pulled back in, like, a mid-level ponytail. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was great. And you showed up. And also, when they were talking, you smiled so little where I was like, (laughs) hee-hee-hee. And so, like, we really balanced each other out well. And at one point, they were like... Okay, so you can get this one. It's going to be more of your price range, um, but there's no heated seats. Cool. And I was like, yeah, I don't need that. And I looked over and you just shook your head. And I was like, no, I need that. (laughs) (laughs) Your little butt gets so cold. (laughs) It does. You're like, if you want it, you don't have to get a car today. We can find it elsewhere. And the lady was like, let me go ask my boss. (laughs) It's like, okay. It was great. Anyway, I got a car. Yeah, I don't handle uh, predatory salespeople well, and I was ready to fight. (laughs) Max was ready to fight. Um, Also, though, they told us, they were like, okay, so we have to get it from here, but here's what the car is, blah, blah, blah. And they said, it's going to be blue. And then we looked at a picture of a blue car, Mm -hmm. but they did say that that wasn't the car that was available. But I think both of us were like, oh, it's going to be that color blue, like a normal dark blue, which is my little car that I'm getting rid of now. And so we just kept making jokes about how that was like my car's mom. (laughs) And just like, we're like, oh, that's great. I went and picked up the car yesterday, and it is lightning blue. (laughs) It's cool guy blue. Oh, the first thing I like went, oh, oh no. And the lady was like, you don't like it? And I was like, well, I can never rob a bank. And then she laughed, and I didn't, (laughs) as if that was my plan. (laughs) I have no plans to rob a bank, but now I for sure have to borrow somebody else's car to do it. It really is. It's a color blue that looks like it should have a surfboard strapped to the top of it. Like it's, it's. <laughs> I'm fulfilling Max's uh, dream of me being Sporty Spice for sure. <laughs> As it was foretold. Oh man. Anyway, I got a car, guys. It was great. Yeah. It, it was, was really good. It was very fun. It was a new experience for me and you. Yeah. Car dealerships are weird places. I've been to a couple of them and the important thing to remember when you're buying a car is that uh, you don't have to do anything. 
<laughs> you don't have to do anything. They can be like, well, you know, we would really like you to do this right now. No, you don't have this to. Deal you can is... simply walk away at any point in time. 100%. You are the one seeking a product and you are the one who has the money and your time is valuable. Don't let anyone waste it. Also, don't let anyone push you into something that you don't want. Yeah. So. Yeah. Very, very hard to do in practice. <laughs> but that's why you bring a max. Yeah. Yeah. I, just sat there with my arms crossed and glared. <laughs> yeah. At one point, this big, like, burly man came up and patted you on the back and said, I like that jacket. I have that jacket. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> Max came to fucking play. <laughs> I don't know. That one. Went, that, for some reason, made me really happy when that happened. Really good. Okay. Well, certainly not dispelling the the lore that you are you and I are lesbian wives. Yeah, I I told my boss I had to leave work a little bit early to come pick you up from the shop and I was like we might go to the dealership which is why I wore my scary guy jacket um cuz I have to I guess go be her scary husband. Yeah. I was using my Max's 100% when I need it, my scary dog privilege. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Uh we also watched The Green Knight. That's we another thing. We watched The Green Knight, guys. Mm-hmm. Dev Patel. Dev Patel. Dev Patel. Dev Patel. I want that cape. That's my, that's the main takeaway is I just, the whole, I don't. It, the man looks good in mustard yellow. <laughs> it looks so soft and yeah. so warm. It's a and it would, I, I feel like everything would smell bad except for that. Mm-hmm. It would probably smell good and fine. That movie made me laugh so hard because it's like the direct, like the writers of that movie had him in mind and they were like, okay, so this character is interacting with him. We need some sort of physical motion. Oh, they'll touch his face lovingly like he's a little baby. And then, like, the next conversation he has with anyone else, they're like, okay, but they need to somehow interact. Oh, okay, we'll have them touch his face lovingly like he's a sad little baby. Yep. <laughs> and then there's like, okay, so he's in a room with King Arthur. Well, he's got to touch his face lovingly like he's a sad little baby. It's just two hours of people cradling Dev Patel's face. (laughs) They heard what the people wanted. They were right. The people want to touch Dev Patel's face like a little baby. (laughs) I don't want to touch his face like a little baby. I do. I want to touch his face like an adult man. (laughs) (laughs) It's just every... Literally every scene, he looks a little bit sad and a little bit wounded, and somebody comes up and they're like, hey. <laughs> and they just wipe dirt from him under his eye, or like they wipe away his tears. Or even like a guy fucking, a psycho, fucking robs him at one point and cradles his face like a baby and then touches his forehead to his, and they have a moment. Why? <laughs> Why? <laughs> That's for us. <laughs> everybody everybody tries to kiss dev patel in this movie and they're right they're right and they should but it's weird it's weird it's weird (laughs) haven't stopped thinking about it though dev patel if you want to be paid a handsome fee to have me (laughs) touch your face like a little baby call call me up It's sort of the story at gmail.com. Just shoot us an email. Shoot us an email. We will split the fee if you'll let both of us touch one side yeah. of your face. <laughs> and I'd be willing to throw a little extra on top if we can also touch your hair. <laughs> just, welcome to sort of objectifying Dev Patel. <laughs> this is a Dev Patel household, though. I will say we are... God. Dev Patel, we gotta stop this. <laughs> we do have to. This is gonna be so embarrassing if we ever meet Dev Patel. <laughs> If we ever meet Dev Patel, I'm going to save just this section of the audio separately so I can just, if I ever get a hold of his email, devpatel at gmail.com. 
I'm almost positive dev Patel at gmail.com could go to like a billion different people. <laughs> that seems like a fairly common name. Which means that there's a one in one billion chance. <sighs> okay. <laughs> well, we got to stop thinking about that. Hey, do we have any listeners who are dev Patel? <laughs> email <laughs> uh guys the green knight by the way max told the story way back in our arthurian legends episode and it was fantastic mm-hmm. and then since then we've done a couple of arthurian legends since then and gawain comes up a bunch this is not the exact myth and so going in i was very disappointed by that and so i didn't enjoy the story but i goddamn enjoyed everything else about this movie yeah it's an max said it before it's an art house film mm-hmm. it's a24 it is meant to be visually stunning and to, and, it is. and to be trippy as fuck. And it is. All the actors are perfect. But yeah, I wasn't a huge fan of the changes they made and the additions they made separately. Mm-hmm. Or together. Separately, I'm fine with them. Together, I don't think they worked as a story that accurately and fairly depicts Sir Gawain, <laughs> who is a precious baby. <laughs> Must be protected. Must be protected. But yeah, if you're going to watch it, I would. I would. It's good. I would. Also, um, um, the cape, really good. Honestly, I would watch it a hundred times just to watch the cape. <laughs> the breakout star of that mo- of this movie really is the yellow cape he wears. It really is. It's, it's just like a this, blanket. Like, it's just a throw blanket that they sewed onto his back. It's like a quilted velvet, like somewhere between like mustard and chartreuse color. Yeah. Beautiful, like jewel tone yellow. It's gorgeous. Yeah, it's quilted with this oversized, like, pattern that looks like a fingerprint. Mm-hmm. Um, and it looks so fucking soft. And it, the color matches so well with the entire backdrop of the yeah. film. Like, it fits in so well that it's like, it, every single shot looks like a painting. Yeah. Gorgeous. Amazing. Okay. Well, that's recommendation corner. I would not go for the story, but I would go for Dev Patel. <laughs> I feel that Who way about most would things. Not. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so with all of that news, Max... I always say that we're not an intro podcast, but we goddamn are an intro podcast. Mm-hmm. It's because we don't talk to each other outside of the podcast, so it's yeah. fun to catch up. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We've never hung out before in our lives. Who are you? <laughs> I don't know. Well, do you want to hear a story? My guess. <laughs> okay. I've got, a, I've got a pretty good one. I'm pretty excited. Okay. Then we'll be back pretty soon. Goodbye. Okay, Max. Okay, Janie. Max, okay. Before my car broke down and I realized that I had to sell my soul to the car dealership, I got a bunch of books off thrift books, mm-hmm. including this beautiful book called Fearsome Fairies, Haunting Tales of the Fae, edited by Elizabeth Durnley, and it's from the British Library. Very beautiful. Yeah. It's Ooh, heavy. yellow. It is heavy. It's just, it has foiled words and letters and pictures and stuff like that. The inside, open it up to the um, end pages. Ooh. They are like bright acid green and mm-hmm. they have like white lines of like images of fairies and forests and stuff. Meshams. Yeah. Uh, I'm a big fan of this book. It's just, it's awesome. Mm-hmm. It's a lot like Roald Dahl's Book of Ghost Stories, you know, mm-hmm. in that Elizabeth Durnley clearly went through and did a lot of research and collected a bunch of stories of fairies from different times. Mm-hmm. So the first one, which is the book, the story that I'm going to tell you today, is The Banshee's Warning, and it was written in 1867. But they go up like 1921, 1945, and they go all the way up to 2004, I believe. Ooh, interesting. 2014. Damn. <laughs> yeah. And some of the titles include 
Laura Silva Bell by the Yellow Moon Rock. The Earl King is in here. Mm-hmm. Concerning a boy and a girl emerging from the earth, which I have a feeling is... The Green Children of Woolpit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And In Yon Green Hill to Dwell. So, like, it's just... And it's a bunch of different authors. It's extremely well-sourced. She does all of the work for us that I usually do of going onto Wikipedia. <laughs> she did all that for <laughs> all me. All that work. <laughs> <laughs> and she also goes into, before each story, she gives a description of each of the fae creatures that the stories are about so that you get like a little brief like what are these historically mm-hmm. and then what's the differentiation between them or the variations and stuff like that so very very cool yeah i'm a big fan of this book it's a 10 out of 10 yeah the green children of Woolpit. by the way i did as an off-topic episode mm-hmm. uh in our most recent season of off topics last summer yeah so. and you can find all that uh all the episodes and stuff in our website yeah so there's a story dot com sort of the story.com you almost said gmail.com yep yeah. <laughs> sort of the story.com and you just go up to the little search no little three lines or whatever and then just look up the off topics that's they're, called they're a burger section. menu did you know that burger menu burger oh mm-hmm. oh yeah that makes sense mm-hmm. so click on the little hamburger icon mm-hmm. and then you'll find the ones that are dots mm-hmm. are called meatball menus oh my god <laughs> what cutie pie <laughs> these lyrics these lyrics these what cutie pie named these <laughs> okay so this is the banshee's warning by charlotte riddle in 1867 are there any riddles in it r-i-d-d-e-l-l riddell maybe charlotte riddle the real riddle is how to pronounce that name <laughs> if you know how contact us <laughs> Okay, so the first sentence is, quote, Many a year before chloroform was thought of, there lived in an old rambling house in Gerard Street, Soho, a clever Irishman called Hertford O'Donnell. Hmm. Was he chloroforming people? <laughs> he was a fucking pioneer, oh. a visionary. <laughs> no one had even thought of it. He was over here chloroforming people left and right. <laughs> I also called him Hertford, but I think I'm going to call him Hertford for the rest of this, so I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. It's spelled H-E-R-T-F-O-R-D. So spelled like Hertford. I'm probably going to say Hartford. Yeah. I might say either. Or I'll call him O'Donnell, because that's his last name. Mm. Hartford was a surgeon at Guy's, which is a hospital, still a famous hospital in London. Guy's? Guy's? <laughs> Gotta go to the hospital. <laughs> Hartford was a surgeon at Guy's, and a damn good one. He was considered a rising star in the surgical world, which, if you remember that chloroform didn't exist yet, mm-hmm. <laughs> it means that he was, like, a lot more than just smart at being good at his job. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Hartford was the type of man who was unbothered by pain and suffering. Ah. So he was really, really good at his job, which oh, involved no. a lot of pain and suffering. Oh, no. And he cared that his operations were successful, but he wasn't really caught up in the minutia of the job. And here's a description explaining why. Quote, if I refrain from adding that a hard as well as a courageous heart was an important item in the program, it is only out of deference to general opinion, which, amongst other strange delusions, clings to the belief that courage and hardness are antagonistic qualities. Hartford O'Donnell, however, was hard as steel. Hmm. <laughs> hard think, as a rock. <laughs> I kept thinking of Deb Patel when I was writing that. Oh, no. There's a really weird scene in that movie, guys. It's weird. You'll know what scene we're talking about, because it's the one that makes you scream. Ah! What? (laughs) Okay. He cared no more for quivering nerves and shrinking muscles, for screams of agony, for faces white with pain, and teeth clenched in the extremity of agony, than he did for the stony countenances of the dead, which so often in the dissecting room appalled younger and less experienced men. 
So in other words, he was an emotionless machine, which made him a damn good Victorian age doctor. Right. Like genuinely, he wasn't going to throw up while amputating something, you know, Mm -hmm. which is generally frowned upon. You you can't throw up on a wound. No, (laughs) I learned that recently. (laughs) To him, the human body was just a series of parts that at times required fixing. The same way Brene loved the Thames Tunnel as a feat of engineering, so did O'Donnell love the patients he successfully operated on. He was proud when they left, and when they were, like, on their way to healing, he's like, I did that. I fixed that. I'm very proud of my work. And after he, like, performed a medical miracle, he would follow up with people. And that made people think that he was genuinely, like, really interested in them. And so they were like, we love that guy. He has the best bedside manner. And he, like, followed up. And really, he's like, okay, you still working? (laughs) How's that healing? You know, I tried something different. Surprised it worked. Happy it worked. Congratulations. (laughs) You know what? (laughs) When he saw them on the streets, he remembered each and every one of them. He had this, like, really intense memory. He remembered every name, every face, every symptom. And he always greeted them warmly and made them feel like the most interesting people in the world. So the fact that he didn't actually care about their personal lives, it didn't matter. Because he made people feel good. And at the end of the day, it, like, just gained him a good reputation in London as a really good doctor and, like, a pretty personable guy. Hartford had great manners. He treated everyone, whether they were above him or below him, with equal grace and politeness. And he was hot as hell, Max. What? And why did we wait this long to I find know. this out? We had to talk about his, how smart he was and how good at his job he is. Okay. And also, what a sociopath he is. <laughs> okay, to me, to me, he just seems a little bit antisocial. Like, I know people like him, but I think that, to me, he just seems a little bit, like, awkward. Like, he obviously has a niche that he's really good at. And that's kind of what he thinks about, you know, even when he's interacting with people, like he's still thinking about surgery and stuff. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. Anyway, but he's also hot. (laughs) Great. Quote. Oh, Max. (laughs) A tall, dark complexioned, black haired, straight limbed, deeply divinely blue eyed fellow with a soft voice with a pleasant brogue who had ridden like a centaur over the loose stone walls in Connemara, who had danced all night at the Dublin balls, who had walked across the Benabiola mountains, gun in hand day after day without weariness, who had fished in every one of the hundred lakes you can behold from the top of that mountain near the recess hotel, who had led a mad wild life at Trinity College and a wilder perhaps while studying for a doctor, as the Irish phrase goes, in Edinburgh. And it just goes on with his accomplishments. But they're like tall, dark, dark hair, blue eyes. Had like a wild time in college. <laughs> like still made it kind of a genius. <laughs> Has an Irish brogue. Pretty good. It's the hottest man ever described. I mean, he's no Dev Patel, but. He's, he's not not Dev Patel. <laughs> he just has blue eyes. His one main fault that people could see was, and this was mostly talked about by the other doctors and, like, wealthy old men who were judgy assholes, was that he was too Irish. (laughs) (laughs) Quote, To the core of his heart, he loved the island which he declared he never meant to revisit, and amongst the English he moved to all intents and purposes a foreigner. They said, quote, he means to go the whole length of his tether, which is a wonderful way to say somebody's going to hell. Mm. (laughs) They said basically that he had sold his soul to the devil and, quote, he was determined to dive the full length of his rope into wickedness before being pulled to that shore where even wickedness is negative, where there are no mad carouses, no wild sinful excitements, nothing but impotent wailing and gnashing of teeth. Mm. Judgy old bitches. (laughs) They're like, he's too hot. He's going to hell. (laughs) He's too good at his job. He sold his soul to the devil. (laughs) 
But he wasn't perfect, okay? He didn't sell his soul to the devil. He wasn't, like, living this amazing life that they thought he was living. He had come from a very wealthy family, and he had stood to inherit a lot of money, especially since his older brother had died unexpectedly a while ago, and so that left him as the sole inheritor of his parents' fortune. But one day, he had simply walked away, and he had never turned back, and he had never returned home again. Hmm. His mother had, at this point, when he had walked away, his mother had chosen a woman for him to marry, this beautiful, well-bred girl named Miss Clifton, who was Catholic and a good match for him and also wealthy. And he had been like, you know, I'm not going to marry her. I don't want to marry her. And his mother had basically threatened to donate her entire estate and all her fortune to charity after she died instead of making him the um, beneficiary Mm -hmm. if he didn't do what she said and married this girl. And so he had packed a bag and boarded a coach and left without kissing his mother or asking for his father's blessing. And he was like, sure, bet. Goodbye. (laughs) And he had also left Miss Clifton without so much as telling her he was sorry because he wasn't. He had no interest in her. He's like, I'm not going to waste our fucking time. Goodbye. And that was 12 and a half years ago, okay? It's been 12 and a half years. He was not going to do it. And even in his most desperate moments, he hadn't written home for help or even to say hello. He hadn't talked to anyone in his family in that entire time. And he's been making his own way since. And so now he lived in this kind of dilapidated house on Gerard Street, which is like on a really bad side of town. And he did make money because he was a surgeon and he was good at his job and he had like a reputation and people really liked him. But he... Also spent money kind of fast, and he was in a lot of debt. <laughs> George, same dude. He lived with a housekeeper and her husband. They were, they lived with him, and the husband acted as his butler. And he often spent time thinking about how much he hated his life outside of being a surgeon. So when he wasn't being a surgeon, he was like, this kind of sucks. Like, I, <laughs> everything outside of the hospital fucking sucks. <laughs> I hate it. Hartford wanted security for when he was too old to work. He often thought about how precarious his situation was with his line of work, getting a single cut on the finger or like slipping on a banana peel outside (laughs) could ruin him for life. He was in the 1800s. (laughs) He knows how health can fail suddenly. And how banana peels litter the streets. They litter the streets. (laughs) So if he was suddenly too sick or too injured to work, he would have nothing to sustain him. And he had seen wealthy men who don't have security suddenly... They're unable to work, and now they're beggars on the street. And he's like, I don't want that to be me. Like, I need to find something else. So he's thinking about the future, and he has a lot of stress about it. So he had resolved at this point to find a wealthy wife. In fact, he had already found one that was okay. She was much older than him. And her name was Miss Janet Price Ingat. He didn't love her, of course, and he knew that many men would not want to give up their bachelorhood to marry an old woman just for her money. But the end justified the means for him. And he thought about this a lot. He was like, I wouldn't be bad to her. I would be an honest husband. Like, it's not like I want to marry her for the money and then run around on her or anything like that. Like, I don't know. This would be a marriage of convenience. And it's kind of a marriage of convenience for her, too. She's waited this long, and she also doesn't really love me. You know, she... (laughs) So, like, I don't know. This seems like it could work. Like, nobody's being lied to. Everybody's being upfront and honest. But I need a better situation. So, and Mm -hmm. she would be marrying like a famous surgeon and so that would have a lot of prestige. And also I'm sure that having like a husband helps with financial situations. I'm not sure how it is in London at this point, but she probably doesn't have full control over her finances because she's a woman. Yeah. You know, Hartford had only ever actually loved one person in his whole life. 
but that had ended in disaster. When he was still young, like a late teenager, he had fallen in love with a beautiful girl who lived in his hometown, and they had really wanted to get married, but he was Catholic and she was Protestant, and their families had basically driven them apart. Their families fucking hated each other. Her father had gone so far as to physically move her to a different town to keep her from continuing her relationship with him, which was when his mother started to push the lovely Miss Clifton on him, and that was also when he was like, fuck this, I'm leaving. Like, I can't believe, like, nobody would give him her address or let him know where she had gone. Like, they just taken her away one day. Mm -hmm. And his mother was being an asshole about it. So he left and never came back. And then he had, like, hardened his heart. He was like, I don't – that was, like – that was my one person. So, like, go fuck yourself. And then he became a surgeon and he's just been, like, scraping and scrapping ever since. Now that marriage seemed his only way to be financially stable, he did not see the problem with settling. So today, Max, Mm -hmm. the time of the story – Mm. It is Christmas Eve. (laughs) And he had actually gone to her house for dinner to propose marriage just that day. But just as he was about to get the words out, he had heard it. A long and mournful wail peeled through the room and then disappeared. So he didn't fully believe he had actually heard what he thought he heard because no one else in the room had. Miss Ingot had, like, started. She was like, whoa, are you okay? Like, what's going on? You suddenly got really pale. And when he was like, did you did you hear that? And she looked at him like, no. <laughs> hear what? And she kind of started looking around. And so he was like, okay, that was really weird. I wonder what that was, because it was not <laughs> what I'm thinking it was, because that doesn't exist here in London. So it's fine. He kept telling himself, this is an old wives' tale. It's in Ireland. That's fine. A banshee had not followed him to London, Max, so it must have been something else. Mm. And get over it and stop thinking that. Title of story. (laughs) (laughs) He was sitting by his fireplace now, smoking a pipe, and he had made up his mind to return to Miss Ingot's house tomorrow and settle the matter once and for all. Okay? And Miss Ingot was also expecting this, so she was kind of, like, weirded out that he hadn't said it today, but he had Mm -hmm. left kind of quickly. So he rose and he kicked down the fire with the heel of his boot and he knocked the ashes out of his pipe and he downed the rest of his whiskey in his tumbler and he decided it was time for bed. He didn't usually go to bed this early, Max. Okay. He's a cool guy. He's a bachelor. It was 11.45 p.m. (laughs) He didn't go to bed before midnight. He's had a stressful day, though. Yeah. But hot boys don't go to bed that early. But you know what? He had a stressful day. He was tired and he was lonely for no reason. And he was like, okay, I guess it's time. (laughs) And he said out loud at this point, he said, quote, the fair Janet would be better than this because he just felt bad. He didn't like being alone anymore. And he was turning towards the stairs when he was startled by a, quote, low, sobbing, wailing cry echoing mournfully around the room. Hmm. It was so loud, he whirled around to see where it was coming from. Quote, it came in a rush of sound, like a gradual crescendo managed by a skillful musician, and died away in a lingering note, so gently that the listener could scarcely tell the exact moment when it faded into utter silence. For the first time, Hartford O'Donnell looked at his dog. What? He's never looked at his dog before? <laughs> oh my god, is that my dog? What the fuck is that? <laughs> oh, for the first time since hearing it, he was like, whoa, and he looked over. His dog was crouched in the corner, shaking like a little leaf. <laughs> Aw, he, call- <laughs> he called to the dog and his own voice sounded strange to him. And it sounded strange to the dog, too, because the dog did not budge. It just, like, stared at him. And he said, quote, come here, sir. <laughs> and the dog crawled reluctantly forward, hair on end. And Hartford sat and was, like, stroking its head gently. And he said, quote, so you heard it, too, Brian. Brian! The dog's name is Brian! Sir Brian. <laughs> 
quote, it is a mighty queer thing to think of being favored with a visit from a banshee in Gerard Street, and as the lady has traveled so far, I only wish I knew whether there is any sort of refreshment she would like to take after her long journey. (laughs) So he said this loudly, kind of mocking the situation with like a slight shake in his voice, Mm -hmm. and he basically waited to see if she would respond but the room was deathly silent. The only sound was the falling of cinders on the hearth and the breathing of Brian. <laughs> sir Brian. <laughs> Come here, sir. <laughs> so gentlemanly. <laughs> so he spoke again. He asked the banshee to tell him who the whale was for, if it was for him or if it was for some member of his family, because those are the two options if you hear it. Yeah. Right. So he was saying, it seems too much honor for a poor surgeon to have such a p- attention paid to him. So that's what he was in the middle of saying this when the whale pierced through the house again. And he cried, good heavens, what is that? Is that some kind of Ah! underwater mammal? (laughs) He yelled so loud that his housekeeper woke up and called down the stairs to him. He ignored her and he ran to the door. He threw it open and he like allowed all this freezing, cold, wet air because it was raining. It all rushed into the house and he yelled out into the darkness. Who is there? What do you want? And when no one answered, he walked out into the cold and he yelled, Who is there? Why the devil can't you speak? He hoped it was burglars. That's what he wanted. He (laughs) wanted a whole team of burglars to, like, attack him. (laughs) Because at least if it was burglars, he would know that he wasn't going mad. But no one answered and no one moved in the darkness. And he realized he was alone. It was almost midnight and there was nobody outside. So he told the housekeeper it's nothing. He said, it's a runaway ring. Don't worry about it. And then he went to bed. He muttered that the banshee surely wouldn't follow him to his bedroom. And he said, surely she's too much of a gentlewoman <laughs> coming here. <laughs> but he didn't turn out the light as he crawled into bed. And he made Brian the dog jump up and sleep with him in the bed. Oh, Brian. <laughs> and all night he kept one hand on the dog's head. <laughs> oh. This reminded me so much of Summer. <laughs> Just like a shaky little boy. This is Francis. Uh, I my son is so loud and rude, and anytime I have like a nightmare or anything, I just fully grab him and like wrap my entire body around him, and he's like, oh. I thought you were saying this is Francis. He's so loud and rude. It's him wailing. <laughs> he's both. He is both. He, he is, is both the banshee and the cuddler. Mm-hmm. So his mind started racing as he was laying there. He hadn't heard the Banshee's call when his brother had died. This is the first thing he thinks of. He's like, I've never actually heard this. And I've had people close to me die. People very important. If he had heard her when his brother had died, he's like, I could have raced home to Cal Gillen and probably saved his life. But I didn't hear her. So like, this probably isn't that. Because if I didn't hear her when somebody as important to me as my brother died, who would I hear her for? You know? Mm Mm-hmm. Then vaguely, he thought about all the stories of banshees he had heard throughout his life. He remembered one about a general officer who had heard the whale before Waterloo and said to his friend, I have heard the banshee and shall not come off the field alive tomorrow. Break the news gently to poor Carrie. But he had walked off the field alive the next day, and he was like safe and sound. But as soon as he got off the battlefield, he got news about poor Carrie dying. And it was broken gently to him. And then Brian, and then Brian, Brian, <laughs> Brian's also thinking about stories. <laughs> he remembered a story about a bone he had buried. <laughs> um, then Hartford remembered the story about a sailor who aloft in the rigging had heard the sobbing and wailing going out over like the ocean waters. And at that point it was kind of still, but there was like a storm coming. And then they just heard like a 
loud cry. So he immediately climbed down and he told the captain that he was afraid the ship was about to sink. And they had redirected the ship and like dropped anchor. And the next morning, they saw that they had been sailing directly towards some black rocks. Mm. And they were like, oh my God, because at that point, the sea had started to like pick up and like there was a storm coming and they could sometimes see these like black reefs peeking out over the waves as they went. And they were like, oh my God, that would have been the death of us. So on deck, the captain was like, how did you know about that danger? And he laughed when the boy had told him he'd heard this like banshee wail. And he was like, well, she was outwitted this time. Good thing. Thanks to you. And the boy had like shaken his head and he was like, no, that was that was a warning for either me or mine. Like something's going to happen. If I make it to port, then there's going to be some bad news waiting for me. Like, yeah, we we didn't crash, but that wasn't what the warning was for. That's not what the Banshee does. Mm-hmm. She's not like saving us from a ship. She's telling me that I'm going to die or somebody I love is going to die. Um, and his captain was like, all right, dude, you need some brandy. <laughs> Take this bottle, go to sleep. And that night he died in his sleep. Oh. So Hartford also then thought about his own father, how his father had heard the wail of the Banshee as he was riding his horse, only to find out that that same day his brother had died when his gun had exploded in his hands. Hartford's brother or his dad's brother? His dad's brother. Mm. Hartford's uncle. So there were these, like, many, there's all these terrible stories going through his head. And that would have kept anyone awake all night, but not Hartford. He fell asleep. (laughs) And he fell asleep with a dog's cold nose pressed against his hand. (laughs) Aw, good job, Brian. So that night he had a dream. He dreamed that he was fishing in his hometown. It was a misty summer morning, and he was hooking one fish after another, like supernaturally fast, just like he'd put his line in and then pull up a fish, and then he'd pull it in and then pull up a fish. A boy was with him, and every time he drew up a fish, the boy would unhook it and throw it into a basket. And soon he caught a fish that was so big and it was so strong that he couldn't really handle it, so he was, like, struggling. And the boy with him started drawing nearer and nearer to the edge to, like, look at what he was doing. And Hartford didn't notice that the boy was in danger until it was too late. There was a cry and a splash, and he disappeared into the water. And when he, like, popped up again, Hartford saw his face for the first time. And, quote, it was one he knew well. End quote. Was it his brother who died it doesn't in say. a fishing accident? <laughs> it doesn't say. He plunged into the water and he grabbed the boy by his hair and had just resurfaced and started pulling him towards land when the stream suddenly changed into a wide, wild, shoreless sea. And so in his dream, uh, Hartford is like holding onto the boy and he's trying to keep them both afloat, but they keep getting swept by these terrible waves and they'd be dunked under the water and they'd resurface only to see like larger waves coming towards them. And the surgeon is like keeping his grip on this boy in his dream. That's his only goal is to keep this kid above water with him. But then a tremendous wave suddenly crashed down on them and the boy was torn from his grasp. And he woke up just as that happened with like a gasp and he heard a voice clearly in his ear say, Go to the hospital. Go at once. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So he like jumps up and he looks around his room in a frenzy. He's it's the candle is still going and he's like confused and he's like rubbing his eyes and he's like, what the fuck just happened? And he still is hearing this voice and it's saying, go to the hospital, go to the hospital, go to the hospital. And so he's like, okay. And at that moment, he hears the ringing of a bell from guys. And that bell is basically calling a surgeon. That's how they like, that's the the warning. They need a surgeon. And he looks up and he's like, oh my God, I'm being summoned. Okay. And so he quickly gets dressed and he races out of his house. 
And he basically all but ran to the hospital, which is kind of a long way. He has to cross the London Bridge in order to get there. Like he's going down all these streets, but he eventually gets to the hospital. And the person at the front desk sees him and is like, oh, we sent for you. Did you meet the messenger on the way? And he's like, no, I, okay, no, I didn't. What's going on? And so the porter tells him that there had been a terrible accident. A mother and her son had been in a fire on this like kind of shitty building, like somewhere close by in this neighborhood. And they had gone to the balcony to get away from it. And the balcony had collapsed under them and they had both fallen basically off this building. The child had a compound fracture of the thigh. So his Mm. femur and breaking your femur can kill you. Yeah. So they said the only way to save his life would be to amputate the limb immediately. And that's why they had called him because that's what he does. So that last line was what made him calm down. Immediate amputation necessary was the line that he was like, I'm a surgeon. Mm -hmm. I can do this. This is what I do. He was, again, the careful, cautious, and successful surgeon. So he's like, okay, can I see that? Like, where is the child? I need to see him. So they start leading him through the staircase to get to the upper level of the hospital. But on the lower step of the staircase, he stopped because he saw, partially in shadow, an old woman was seated. She had streaming gray hair with attenuated arms. Do you know what that means? Isn't that like you can like you can see the like the veins, yeah, or like the the muscles and the sinew and everything like that? Yeah, that's okay. That makes sense. Ugh. She had streaming gray hair with attenuated arms. Her head was bowed forward, and she was wearing scanty clothing and no shoes. She never looked up, but sat shaking her head and wringing her hands in despair. And Hartford was like, "Who's that woman?" And the porter looked at him and was like, "What woman?" And he said that. That woman right there. And he starts to get like agitated again. Like he had calmed himself down, but like that kind of sent a chill through his body. And the porter kept saying like, what? I don't, there's no woman here. Like, what are you talking about? And he's like, we're, there's no one else in here. And Hartford is like still arguing. And as he's arguing, the woman rose and began to float in the air. Her arms stretched high over her head, and then she began to scream in such a wail of pain and distress that it was, like, bouncing around the stairwell, and Hartford's, like, covering his ears. And he's like, are you hearing this? Do you hear that? And he's, like, screaming over her. And the porter is like, what are you talking about? Because nothing is happening in the porter's mind. Jesus. Nobody's there. Terrifying. At this point, the porter is like, oh, my God, is this guy so drunk? I think he's really drunk right now. Like, I'm about to take him to do surgery. And Hartford, at this point, doesn't even care that it's going to make him sound crazy because he's kind of losing it. He says, the wail of the banshee, some of my people are doomed. So his nerves are shaken now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that that took him right back out of it. Hartford O'Donnell walks into the accident ward and he sees the patient. It's a young boy with a compound fracture on his thigh. The surgeon had never felt a moment's hesitation while on the job, but now as he examined the injury, he's like, his hands are shaking so bad, he can't even fucking grab his his stuff to, like, get his tools and stuff ready. As he's trying to get all of his instruments in order and calm himself down, he hears the boy begin to murmur, tell her not to cry so, tell her to stop crying. And this boy's just like, he's so weak and he's still awake because they can't knock out patients yet, you know? And he's just saying, like, tell her to stop crying, please tell her to stop crying. And he stops and he's like, what are you talking about? And the boy says, it's that woman, that woman with the gray hair. I saw her looking from the upper window before the balcony gave way. She has never left me since and she won't be quiet. She keeps wringing her hands and crying. And Hartford looks at him. And at this point, the nurse is like, he's delirious. Don't worry about it. And he like completely ignores the nurse. And he says, 
where is she? Can you point at her? Can you show me where she is? And the boy points a weak finger in the direction of the door where Hartford clearly sees the same woman standing with her arms over her head and her bare feet. And she's screaming. And so Hartford calls the house surgeon to him. And he's like, I can't do the surgery. You have to find somebody else. And the guy is like, no, you have to do it. We have nobody else here to do it. And he's like, I'm, I'm incapable of doing this. I can't stop shaking. I think I'm sick. You, you have to call somebody else to help this kid. And the house surgeon is like, you have to do it anyway. I'm so sorry. They said that they tried to call another surgeon, but he was out of town. And all the other surgeons lived too far away. They would never make it in time. And he's like, at any moment, mortification is going to set in and this kid is going to be doomed. Like, we have to do this now. But even though O'Donnell knew that this boy's life is hanging by a thread, he's like, I can't do it. And he says, say that I'm ill. Say that I'm dead. I don't care what you say. Heavens, there she is again. She's right over the boy. Don't you see her? And with that, he passes out. He just fucking blacks out and falls to the floor. So when he woke up, it was Christmas morning, and the principal physician of Guy's was standing beside him. O'Donnell immediately, he looks at him and he says, what happened to the boy? Did somebody else operate? And the physician shakes his head and is like, well, mortification had set in. And so we didn't call another surgeon because it would have been kind of cruel to start amputations because he he would not have made it. So we had to like let him just go. And Hartford was like, um, the boy has a mother. Somebody told me that, or like maybe I dreamed it. Do you know where she is? And the guy was like, well, yeah, she, she was bruised, but she wasn't injured in the fall. She's okay. And at this point, Hartford is like in tears. And he says, quote, has she blue eyes and fair hair, fair hair, all rippling and wavy? Is she white as a lily with just a faint flush of color in her cheek? Is she young and trusting and innocent? No, I'm wondering. She must be nearly 30 by now. Oh, the doctor looked at him strangely and was like, is the woman you're describing Irish? And he's like, yeah. And then he realized that was the woman he had fallen in love with. He said, a woman who should have been my wife, whose child was my son. Oh, God. <laughs> I know. Ooh. After he told the, do- the doctor the story of how he had lost her, remember his mother had... yeah torn him apart. He followed him to where the boy's mother was sitting. Quote, her cheeks pale and pinched, her hair thinner, but still falling like a veil over her. The love of his youth, the only woman he had ever loved devotedly and unselfishly. I'm like tearing up over here. Yeah. This beautiful love story. This very sad story. When they locked eyes, the years that had passed seemed to melt away. They cried and held each other and they like both told each other what had happened since they had been separated. Because, again, he had no idea where they had taken her. Yeah. She had been faithful to him all those years. Basically, after she had had this baby, she either had been kicked out or left or something. Like, they would not have let her raise that child. So she basically took this kid and then lived in poverty for the past 12 and a half years. But she had remained faithful to him that entire time, basically just meaning she never fell in love again. Mm-hmm. And he also had never fallen in love with again. again. In a few days, news came from Calgillan, his home, saying that the Banshee's wail had been heard there too. And it was a letter from his parents. And they said, basically, if you're still alive, please let bygones be bygones. We're sorry for everything that happened. Like, we're realizing now that we really, we want you back in our lives. Like, please reach out to us. Tell us that you're okay. We're really sorry. That Christmas day, so the very, so that happened a few days later. But that day that he reconnected with this beautiful woman that was the mother of his child that just died. 
that was the day he was supposed to go propose to Miss Ingot. <laughs> Remember that? Mm-hmm. So he went to her and he told her he was sorry. He's like, I reconnected with my lost love. And he kind of told her the story. And he realized just how wonderful this woman was when the only thing she responded with was, ask her to come to me till you can claim her. And God bless you both. Meaning she doesn't Aww. have a home. She can stay here until you get married. <laughs> that's so nice. I know. And that's the end of the story. Oh, my God. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Isn't that intense? That's a sad one, but a really sweet one. Yeah. It's the story itself is written in Victorian speak. I was telling you when I was reading this, it's the sort of speak that you're just like, God, what part of this is actually important to the plot? Yeah. This is so flowery. There's so many words. And it's the reason why I don't get through many Victorian novels. I fucking yeah. I can't stand them usually. They're very overwrought. Overwrought. I don't want to have a whole... Bit. This is why I couldn't get through Frankenstein. I love Mary Shelley in theory, but good Lord, I don't want to hear about how wet the grass is for another 17 pages. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> so it took me a while to figure out what she was doing. And I also reordered some of the story so that it made more sense. Like they don't reveal... They don't say that he had a lost love until he wakes up and says, that child was my son. You know, like, they don't tell mm-hmm. that story until afterwards. So you're like, oh, oh. So he just has a son. So I kind of put that description up higher. Yeah. But still, a very intense and very beautiful and sad story that I wasn't expecting from this Victorian author. Yeah. Kind of. I don't know. Something kind of universal and timeless about how the ghost story plays out, you know? Yeah. They really made, like, a heartbreaking love story out of that dumb joke where it's like, I can't operate on this boy. He's my son. And it's like, oh, because the doctor's a woman. The doctor's a woman. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So the only note I have is about who Charlotte Riddle is. She was born in 1832 in Ireland. She died in 1906. I'm guessing in London. She moved to London in her early 20s after her dad died because she was determined to make it as a writer. She published over 50 novels. Her first one was published by uh, Cadbury Press. Mm. It's the same people who published Wuthering Heights. So, like, they kind of made a name for themselves by publishing really famous, like, soon-to-be-famous women authors, which is cool. Very cool. She published over 50 novels and edited the literary periodical St. James's Magazine. This story, The Banshee's Warning, was her first ghost story ever published, and she later became famous for her supernatural stories and weird tales. Oh, I like it. Yeah. Okay, that's very, it. Very, very cool. The Banshee's Warning. <laughs> that was a good one. Thank you. I like that one. That was a good, a good ghost story. A good ghostly story. The image of her suddenly floating in front of him with her arms Ooh, up horrifying. in the air. <laughs> I know that it's because we just watched The Great Night, but that feels very A24. A hundred percent. Just like... Ugh, so scary. With her arms up is also so weird. And now that you've kind of explained what attenuated means, like with the, now I'm just imagining all of the like, it's very much old, it's a way to describe old women as well. So I'm not a huge fan of when old women are made into monsters. Banshees themselves, though, are not always old women. Mm-hmm. Sometimes in lore, they are, if a family has, like if a virgin in a family dies, she's cursed to like haunt that family and basically like, tell them when people are going to die. So it's very family-based. Like, they have a banshee. You know, like, it's not... That banshee's not going to show up for other people. That's their specific banshee. Which is also why he was like, there's no way that she followed me to London. She has better things to do. Yeah. (laughs) No, she doesn't. No. She's here for you and to haunt the shit out of your dying child. (laughs) Yep. (sighs) Poor baby. Okay, do you want to take a quick break? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, we'll be back. Bye. Ooh. 
Okay, Janie. Okay, Max. So I googled attenuated. I wasn't quite right about the definition. Um, in this case, attenuated means thin or reduced in thickness. So it's like yeah. kind of like shriveled. A yeah, little bit. that's kind of that's basically you would see all this, the sinew and the muscles and stuff. Yeah, I was thinking articulated. Oh, like an articulated. Um, yeah, like when they uh, like an articulated like medical skeleton kind of mm-hmm. where they have all of the like joints and everything that are semi-operational. Yeah. Either way, it's the same image that yeah. comes up. Very mm-hmm. spooky. Very, very spooky. Okay, Janie, the story I have for you today is from classic wife guy Lafcadio Hearn. <laughs> hey, what's, la, what's, what's up? <laughs> what's up, Lafcadio? <laughs> Why are they trying to say what's up? <laughs> Lafcadio Hearn. What's up? <laughs> <laughs> Classic wife guy, Lafcadio Hearn. I've used him a bunch of times on the podcast before. I just got a new collection of his stories. It's, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's a little cloth-bound edition of a handful of his stories from a few different sources. Uh, it's called Of Ghosts and Goblins. <laughs> Lafcadio Hearn, we've talked about a bunch of times on the podcast before. He was, I believe, an Irishman who uh, like fell in love with the mythology of Japan and moved there and gave himself a Japanese name and married a Japanese woman and like recorded a bunch of folktales from Japan. Wasn't he Greek? Am I crazy? Or was Lafcadio a Greek name? I, I don't think he was Irish. Is he, yeah. Something weird, right? European, something like that. Something European. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I can look it up real quick. Because okay. I want to know. I feel like he was Greek, but why am I thinking of that? Lafcadio... <laughs> What's up? Oh, boy. <laughs> he was Greek. He was born in Lefkada, Greece. Lafcadio, Lefkada. I wonder if he was named after his hometown. Maybe. Like naming my sister Savannah. That's what he looked like. Mm. I think he was... Maybe he was, like, born in Greece, but he was Irish or something like that, though. Was an Irish writer, translator, and teacher. So he was born Patrick Lefkadio Hearn. Wait, he was, d- does it have his Japanese name? Yakumo Koizumi. <laughs> he gave himself a Japanese. He's very much white like, guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's he's uh, real <laughs> good for her. White guy who's really into anime, but also in a way that is honestly very sweet. Yeah, um, <laughs> and as unproblematic as he can be. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he collected a bunch of stories. He tells them in a really cool way, and uh, a lot of the stories that we have from like early 20th century Japan are from Lafcadio Hearn and his records, mm-hmm. which is very cool. It is cool. The story that I'm going to tell today is also called Of Ghosts and Goblins, <laughs> title of book. <laughs> title of book. That's the name that it has in this book. In the original collection that it is in, it doesn't have a title because it's told as an anecdote in part of a chapter of like, sort of, an, it's sort of autobiographical. It's about him encountering the stories. So they don't have names. He's like, and then my gardener told me this story. Okay. You know? Um, yeah. So it doesn't actually have a name, but they've given the name of Ghosts and Goblins. I also saw online, um, someone called it The Test. Okay. And it's a short little baby. A short little baby cutie episode. A little shorty <laughs> baby cutie. Yeah. So this originally appeared in Glimpses of Unfamiliar Japan, Volume 2 by Lafcadio Hearn. <laughs> He's such a dweeb. I love him so much. <laughs> Fucking dork. <laughs> um, there once was a beautiful samurai woman. What? Yeah. 
cool. I'm going to talk about that right now. Okay. We got three words in before I have to explain something. <laughs> I would like to hear it. Uh, so I have some links in the notes for this episode about female samurai. I didn't realize that they existed. I had never heard of a female samurai before. Yeah. And it's a little bit of a misnomer. They're not technically samurai, but they are like female warriors who effectively train the same way as samurai and who were not only they had all of the skills of a samurai and also like all of the skills of like a learned and educated woman uh where they were like fantastic writers and also a lot of times their job would be to like protect groups of women um, oh, it's so fucking cool girls 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 um <laughs> But they had, I read a whole bunch of articles on them. They're so unbelievably cool. They're um, called either Ona Musha or Ona Bugesha. And they're fascinating. There's a bunch of articles about them that I have linked in the show notes for this. I'm not going to talk about that too much, but it's so fucking cool. They also have this weapon that is specific to them, which has become an icon of like women's power a little bit it's like a pole arm where it's long mm-hmm. and then it has a blade at one end that can detach so that it, it can be like a a short sword and a staff kind of yeah uh, and then it connects at the end so a lot of times they were really talented at like fighting on horseback but the thing that's cool about it is because they are like smaller than their male opponents usually so mm-hmm. it gives them more reach to be able to get to people and also more um flexibility so they can like you know, they can detach it and everything. It's very cool. And all of the, like, models of the weapons are fascinating. That uh, is... Check it out. That is a self-defense technique that they that they tell you about in self-defense classes, is that you are, like, way less likely to be attacked at night, like, on the street and stuff like that by people if you're holding something like an umbrella. Anything that can, you know... Extend you your can, reach. Exactly. Yeah. People are like, oh, I'm not going to fucking mess with that person. I'll go for the person with their headphones in who has nothing in her hands. Yeah. And who is la la laing down the street in her little pink skirt. <laughs> me. Hey, you guys. <laughs> it's you. <laughs> it's me. Yeah, so absolutely fascinating. I didn't realize that female samurai were a thing. Immediately very, very cool. Yes. Uh, but, so. Love it. There is this female samurai who is incredibly beautiful. And all of the male samurai want to marry her because she is talented, she is clever, she is a fierce warrior, and she is, again, very, very beautiful. And Mm -hmm. she comes from, you know, a a pretty well-off family in part because of her deeds. So uh, she is, like, very much a hot item on the market, if you will. (laughs) I'm sure she would love to be described as a hot (laughs) item. (laughs) We are out here objectifying women. And women Dev and Dev Patel. Patel. <laughs> Who's another hot little piece? <laughs> Sorry, Deb. <laughs> I feel bad about that. Let us apologize to you the only way we know how, by gently holding your face like a baby. <laughs> Again, not like a baby. <laughs> I just want to wipe away your tears after I make you cry. <laughs> what? Why are you looking at me like that? I'm not the weird one. I think you might be the weird one. I might be the weird one. (laughs) Go ahead. Often in this time, if a woman was to be married, it would be decided by her parents. Um, They would, you know, grant someone her hand. Yes. But that wasn't always the case. And her parents specifically were like, we're not going to decide who our daughter marries. Because she'll fucking kill us. (laughs) Yeah. With her fast fists. Yeah. (laughs) Her cool knife. (laughs) Um, So they... they... We're scared of our daughter. (laughs) Uh, so they announced that their daughter will choose her own husband. Hell yeah. Basically. Um, which, again, not unheard of, but pretty rare. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So she tells everyone, she's like, I will be accepting suitors. Anyone who wants to court me for my hand will have to pass a a love test that I will offer to them. Mm -hmm. If they pass, I will marry them. If they don't pass, they cannot tell anyone what the test was and they have to leave me alone. (laughs) (laughs) So she kind of announces this to everyone and immediately all of these very wealthy and like very high status samurai and men of like the upper echelon immediately start to pursue her. Mm -hmm. Um, She has all of these courtiers all the time and every single one of them, she puts them through whatever this test is and every one of them runs the opposite fucking direction. It's calculus. It's calculus. I also would not be able to be her wife. (laughs) She hands them a piece of paper with an anatomical drawing of a vagina and she's like, find it. And it has the parts A, B, C, D like labeled. You just have to correctly place them. (laughs) Um, And they're like, ye gods. She gives them an IUD and she says, what is this? If they can't answer correctly, they can't be her husband. Yeah. Um, but whatever this whatever this test is, all of them go to face this test and all of them fail and immediately, like, drop her. They're like, we are gone. Some of them fucking leave town oh, and fuck. won't come back. And they are, all, like, terrified. Good. Yeah. So whatever this test is, these rumors start to go around that there must be something wrong with her, right? She must be some kind of... Like a fox spirit. Exactly. They are like, maybe she's a fox woman. Maybe she's a goblin. Um, classic goblins. People are constantly saying that about me. Maybe she's a fox person. <laughs> maybe, maybe she's, she's a, a goblin. goblin. Maybe. It's Maybelline. It's Maybelline. <laughs> Guys, it's just Maybelline. I'm wearing makeup. (laughs) Goblin. (laughs) I put my makeup on in a terrifying way. (laughs) So these men all fail the test and run for the hills, basically. And eventually she has kind of worked her way through all of these very well-to-do suitors. Uh, And each of them comes to her and is like, I'll be the one to pass the test. And every one of them fails whatever this test is Mm -hmm. and is ashamed and terrified and fleas basically yeah so she works her way through this kind of like upper class of society until there is basically no one left in this upper class for her to test Mm -hmm. um and at this point like people who maybe wouldn't have a chance with her start to pursue her hand one such man is a young samurai and he is very talented he is very brave um he's very smart and he's very poor Mm -hmm. Um, he is like new basically, but he is incredibly talented with his sword. He is very good at being a samurai basically, but he just doesn't have any money, which usually would count him out of the running. Uh, but because she has kind of been through a lot of people already and declined them all or scared them away, he has been in love with her for a very long time. And he's like, I might actually have a chance. So he goes to her and he courts her and they hit it off immediately. Like they are talking and they are laughing and uh, there is just immediately a spark, right? And then uh, their conversation sort of comes to a close and she a little bit regretfully is like, well, if you want my hand, you have to pass my love test. If you want to be my lover, you have to get with my friends. You have to get with my friends. <laughs> They're going to tell me if you're a good lover and then I'll see. <laughs> so he's like, whatever the test is, I will do it. And okay. she's like, okay, well, I've heard that before, but you know, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> I guess. So she says, all right, 
in a few days' time, come back here at night, and I will perform the test. And he's like, all right. So a couple days pass. He goes back at night. He's surprised that he is greeted not by, like, servants or her family or anything. It's just her Mm -hmm. alone in the house, basically. And she greets him and brings him inside. And she is in a very different mood. It's a little bit somber. Um, She's a little cagey, Hmm. um, like a little bit anxious. Uh, And she brings him inside and she tells him that the place that they are going, they are going to go very, very, very late at night. Um, So in the meantime, she like sets out some tea and some food and they eat quietly. And then she's like, I'll come back when it's time to go. And then she disappears up into her room and he just waits. Okay. So a little bit after midnight, She descends the stairs and comes back down to where he is waiting. And she's changed clothes. So now she is all in these, like, white silks. Very, like, gossamer fine white silks. And she has her hair pulled back. And she looks, for all the world, like a ghost. Mm. Um, She has a lantern. And she just kind of, like, floats down the stairs lightly. Mm. Um, And he, again, immediately, like, the mood changes. And he's like, this is very weird, actually. This is actually very, very weird. (laughs) (laughs) And she wordlessly gestures for him to follow her. And they leave the house. And they walk through the streets of town with him following her. Mm -hmm. And they walk out of town. And they walk through the forest. Mm -hmm. And they keep walking until they reach an ancient graveyard. A cemetery that has been there for centuries there is nobody else around they are alone in the woods basically in the cemetery and she again completely wordlessly sort of glides into the cemetery and like hops over the fence and goes in and he is like all right well this is really fucking weird um (laughs) how many of the men didn't get past this stage (laughs) hard to say I feel like Um, a lot of them were like, she's breaking into a cemetery. I gotta go. (laughs) (laughs) So he follows her and he keeps close enough to her that she's like protected. But he keeps his hand on his sword the whole time. Because he doesn't know what the fuck is going on. And this is really, honestly, very unnerving. Yeah. So she sort of glides in her white silks through the cemetery until they reach a freshly dug grave. Um, (laughs) There is a description... Uh, they say that she looks she looks like a soul all in white like a like a ghost they also describe the night as oborazukiyo which means a moon clouded night Mm. always upon such a night tis said do ghosts wander (laughs) spooky 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 into it she glided a white shadow into blackness he followed wandering his hand upon his sword so they go into this fresh grave, this like freshly dug grave. The earth is still, you know, moist from where it has been filled in. And right next to this fresh grave, there are the tools of the grave digger. You know, there's the shovel and everything. And she bends down. Um, she sets down her lantern. She bends down. She picks up the shovel mm-hmm. and she starts to dig with truly shocking speed and strength. Oh, no. <laughs> uh <laughs> like what the fuck and he sees her face in the candlelight and it's like this like flickering light under the moon and like he sees her face and it looks strange (laughs) um and he's like okay this might actually be bad actually (laughs) i might be in danger actually 
Um, and she just digs into this grave with like impressive speed and force until finally the shovel hits something with a loud resounding boom. And she wrenches the shovel and it snaps the lid of a coffin in half. And she reaches in and she grabs the two halves of the coffin and throws them out of the grave. <laughs> this is a content warning for uh, dead child. Okay. Oh, I didn't, get, dead... I didn't give a content warning for my dead child. Well. Uh, this is the dead child episode. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, there is a dead child mm-hmm. in the coffin. And uh, like the, the inside of the coffin is all lined in white. This, this is really upsetting. Uh, she reaches in and her, at this point she's been digging. Her hair is wild. All of her white silks are covered in dirt and everything. Um, she reaches into the coffin and she looks up at him with a grin. She grabs the child's arm and wrenches it off. <sighs> and then she takes the arm in both hands and splits it in half at the elbow. Oh, and she crouches down next to the grave and starts to chew on the upper part of the arm. Yeah, pretty gross. Pretty gross. Huh. And she says, if if the train going northbound is going <laughs> 67 miles an hour and the train going southbound is going, as she's like chomping on an arm, this is the test portion. <laughs> um, so she's like crouched on the ground. She's chewing on half of a child's arm that she has just ripped out of the earth. And she has, her face is wild and her eyes are bright. And she tosses him the other half of the arm. And she says, eat it if thou lovest me. This is what I eat. And... Okay, well, this is what you eat, but I'm a vegan. (laughs) (laughs) And he immediately takes up the arm and starts to eat it. Ew! Yep. And he says, it is excellent. I pray you give me a little more. Uh, He's a freak. He's a freak. (laughs) So they both just tear into this child's arm together on either side. (laughs) Great child. Poor child indeed. And then she looks up at him and she laughs. And she says, "Uh, you only of all my brave suitors did not run away. And I wanted, I wanted a husband who could not fear. I will marry you. I can love you. You are a man. Toxic masculinity. Uh, <laughs> but uh, she looks up at him and, he, and she laughs and he laughs because, um, like, he did not hesitate even for a second because as soon as he touched the arm, he felt that it was made of cake. What? Mm-hmm. Wait, is that in there? Mm-hmm. This is an episode of Is It Cake? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah, so the the arm is made of, uh, in the story it's called kwashi. I think it's actually uh, wagashi, which are these like pastries and sweets that are typical in Japan. They're like the, the little like cake things that are like different <laughs> shapes and stuff like that. So it's just that she has made a fake child out of cake and buried it. And then, like, brought people out here to scare the shit out of them by making them think that she's a goblin. (laughs) And he was like, whatever, I'm down, ride or die. And he just starts eating the cake with her. Oh, I fucking love her. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So (laughs) this is uh, just a little story, just a little baby story. Just a little, a little Absolutely love. About is it cake? What a fucking twist. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) But also, I just want to say that this is also a PSA. Don't say that you want a big titty goth girlfriend. <laughs> Don't say if it. You are not down to go into a graveyard and eat an arm with her. Yeah. 
You gotta be ride or fucking die. (laughs) Oh my god. (laughs) (laughs) That's the most shocking thing I've ever heard. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's fucking wild. Ancient Japanese, is it cake? (laughs) Is it cake? I just, I love her being like, I I don't want someone who's not ride or die. I don't want someone who's going to get scared when I... uh, Go into a cemetery in the middle of the night looking like a ghost to eat an arm that is cake because I've come up with this whole grand scheme. How much cake did she make? How many cakes of children has she been through? As much as she needs. I doubt anybody got past her digging. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. I would say probably 70% of the men didn't get past her sneaking into a graveyard. I bet that they thought that was weird. Mm -hmm. And then when she started digging the grave, that was weird. And then if she actually made it to a coffin, the second that she opened it and looked at them, they probably all started to run away. Like, I doubt many men even made it to the point where she revealed the cake. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This is like Wednesday Adams. Yes. Like, fucking, like, any... What other girl... There's, like, a bunch of little girl characters who act exactly like this. Yes. Who are just constantly pranking people and being horrifying and disgusting in the best ways. Oh, I love it. That was fantastic. It's so good. (laughs) So funny. I... I love that story. I also love, so a lot of Japanese stories are like, ooh, like a samurai is out in the wilderness and then he comes across a house and he goes into the house and people are really welcoming, but then he goes to sleep and then he finds out that they're monsters Mm -hmm. and then he kills all of them and it proves because he was ready for them and, you know, you can can trust people until you can't and he, with quick action, (laughs) saved himself from being eaten by goblins and you always have to be ready for goblins and this guy... (laughs) This woman brought him out into a cemetery in the middle of the night and started chewing on people. And he was like, yeah, all right. <laughs> Down. Down. Totally fine. Let's see where this goes, baby. <laughs> yeah, just no moment of, like, also fucking gutsy of her. Like, because all of those stories are end with, like, a samurai beheading all of the monsters. Yeah. He came out here with a sword. But she was a samurai, too. Exactly. There's no way that she didn't have to be afraid. Yeah. Yes. A hundred percent. But also, like... There is a chance that he would have been like, ah, a goblin and tried to kill her. <laughs> I mean, I mean, there is a chance that any of these men, the second that she let them into her home to like, yeah, late at night while she was alone could have attacked her. You know, she just didn't have any fear because mm-hmm. she was so well trained and such a badass. Such a badass. Such a I badass. love them so much. They are. I do whew, too. Insane. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. I also really like the honesty of this is what I eat. I only eat cakes. <laughs> If you are going <laughs> to hang out with me, you have to eat cake with me. You must promise to never try to get me to eat a vegetable. <laughs> I don't I like them. Won't like it. No, no, no. <laughs> um yeah, so that's uh of Ghosts and Goblins. Uh also as a little afternote, apparently the video game company Capcom has a really long running series of video games called Ghosts and Goblins <laughs> and apostrophe. Yeah. <laughs> which has been coming out since the 80s and has absolutely no relation to this whatsoever. Uh, they should have a... Except that it is They should have the storyline in that. Yeah. It'd be good. I love it. I love the... Like, also, I I feel like a lot of stories like the love test are like, you have to do this this crazy task. Like, Atalanta, or like, you have to race me, you know? Yeah. I mean, Atalanta is one of the ones where at least it's like under her agency, but I feel like a lot of like Western fairy tales, oh. it's a love test of like, you have to go slay a dragon. And it's like, that's not anything. And it's the king who's putting yeah, out the test. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I really like that it was her putting out the test. And I also like that the test was 
very clearly like completely her conception and she just wanted to make sure that whoever she was with was going to be as fucking buck wild as she is <laughs> she's like i don't if you're not down i'm not interested that is hilarious i love it that I is love really her. good <laughs> this is the sort of couple that at their that they want this this couple is the couple that one day will say like hey we're having a party it's a costume party show up and it turns out it's their wedding like yes. that's that's what this couple would do they're fucking weird <laughs> yes uh yeah, so that's that's that story the and April I love it. And, and I'm Andy. Never gonna stop yes. That's who it is. It's April and Andy from Parks and Rec. Very yeah, I love them. So. Adorable. Uh yeah, so check out the show notes for this episode for more information about female samurai because they're Hell cool yeah. as fuck. Hell yeah. Cool as fuck. That was fantastic. <sighs> Good job. I liked it a lot. <laughs> Guys, if you enjoyed this, oh, you know what we didn't do? Patreon. We didn't plug the Patreon. Who the fuck are we? Guys, if you enjoyed these and you want more of them, we have 11 bonus episodes up right now that you can listen to. They're full-length, girthy little babies <laughs> that you can num 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 gobble right up. <laughs> Plus extras because we do a Q&A at the end and it's very fun. And you can get that by joining us on Patreon at the $7 tier. Yeah. We release one new full-length episode every month. Uh, you also get access to the back catalog of episodes. So mm-hmm. that's the $7 tier. For $3, you can join us on Discord. Come hang out with us and all of our lovely little friends. Uh, we got memes. We got tales. We got... Uh, pictures of my new car. <laughs> yeah. A lot of car pictures. <laughs> yeah. We're kind of car heads. <laughs> super car heads (laughs) super car heads yeah and uh send us an email sort of the story at gmail.com and you can find us on socials at sort of the story everywhere Um, everywhere yeah and just have a good fucking rest of your day okay yeah enjoy that shit yeah or else or else we'll dig up a child and eat them in front of you i don't know (laughs) all right bye guys are you not gonna say goodbye to them are you mad at them no okay I just didn't know if you were done. I wasn't ready. Goodbye, guys. Bye. Wow, that seemed forced. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) Okay, bye. Max. Janie. I have a question for you. Mm -hmm. What are some song lyrics that you misheard and just for years you, you were singing the wrong things? For example, with me, the song, She's a Brick house when i was mm-hmm. little i thought they were saying she's a bitch ow <laughs> and i that made sense to me i was like oh he called her a bitch and then she slapped him yeah. she's a bitch ow <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty fair yeah um oh that song what is it called it's like they paved paradise and put up a parking lot oh my god i know this one <laughs> yeah i thought it was uh pink paradise uh oh putting a parking pop or something like that i thought it was just like a bunch of oh weird it's about like <laughs> mine is i thought for sure they were saying they paved paradise and put up a fucking lot <laughs> and i used to think wow they must really like this song to let be the only one that they let curse on <laughs> on the radio that's wild mm-hmm. i thought they were being like oh it's a pink paradise <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> <laughs> and they want a pudding pop <laughs> <laughs> I was <laughs> I was filming this indie weird indie horror film and we were going to a location in a car and it was just like the best fucking casting crew like I'm still best friend Jenny that's where I met my friend Jenny mm-hmm. um it was the best we got to sleep for 4 days overnight in this like giant haunted 
colonial mansion. Like, it was the weirdest experience of my life and so fun. The actual movie, guys, is so bad. <laughs> but the but the experience was like 11 out of 10. But we were driving <laughs> to a location and the song um, We Are Young by mm-hmm. Fun came on. Yeah. And everybody was like singing at the top of their lungs and being silly and just having a great time road tripping to this location. And when it got to this part where it was like, na, 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 na. I thought everybody was being, because we were being kind of silly. Yeah. And everybody what? was being like, meow, 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 meow. And I was like, this is hilarious. And so I'm just like singing at the top of my lungs, meow, 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 meow. And then I realized I was the only one singing. <laughs> Everyone had turned around and apparently, no, they weren't doing that. I was doing that. And they had all stopped to look at me like, <laughs> meow? Are you a weird cat girl? <laughs> <laughs> They, like, stopped the thing. I was so convinced everybody was having the same good time I was. (laughs) I knew someone in middle school who, what is it called? Unwritten? Mm -hmm. Natasha Bedingfield? The rest is still unwritten. Uh, She thought that the the words were, um, feel the rain on your chin. (laughs) Feel feel the rain on your chin. (laughs) Why is your chin so big and bulbous? (laughs) It's taking up like half of your face. <laughs> your face is an umbrella for the mice of the forest. <laughs> Anyways, I can't hear that song without thinking of that. Every time I want to the rain on your chin. <laughs> it's really good. And it's also uh, time to mention the banger that is my sister when she was little about Felice Navidad was about Felice <laughs> Naughty Dog. <laughs> Ooh, he's a naughty dog. Felice, that naughty dog. Mm. I think a more recent one, mm-hmm. Taylor Swift, as a song that has a lyric that says, he looks up grinning like the devil. And everyone heard, he looks so pretty like the devil. Aww. <laughs> Which is a much better line. <laughs> but also, she's for sure talking about him going down on her. Oh. <laughs> looks up grinning like the devil. <laughs> No matter what, it's a good line, I think. But he looks so pretty like the devil is, I want that tattooed on my body. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty good. I like that a lot. 